This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next, conversations on human rights with Speak Up, Korerotia, here on Plains FM. Eina mana, eina reo, eina hoe fa, tena koto katoa, no mai ki tene hotaka. Speak up, Korerotia. Tune in as our guests speak up, sharing their unique and powerful experiences and opinions. And may you also be inspired to speak up when the moment's right. Ko speak up Korerotia tene, ko salakaltana ho. Today we're talking about diversity in governance. With three panelists, Rosanne Howarden, Josiah Tuala Mali'i, and Kate Reid. First up, we're going to ask you to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about why you are involved in this panel. What's your experience in governance and in this space, generally speaking? Rosanne, perhaps we'll start with you. Apart from being an early feminist, I did my doctoral thesis on women on boards of directors and got very interested in director networks uh, and have been working in this space for over probably 15 years now. And apart from that, I do historical research around uh, historic trade networks, particularly in the Pacific Islands and in Africa. Oh, Malo Lava, to those who are listening and the wonderful team in the room. Um, interestingly enough, I also study history. I do postgrad history at University of Canterbury, Oloi um, Josiah, Josiah is my name, and um, looking at Christchurch's Pacific history, what Pacific people we've got up to here since we arrived, since that we're not journeying um, via sea anymore, but the different streets and communities here in, in Ōtautahi. And outside of that, um, I am a board director of six companies, and so that's um, some are in Pacific wellbeing, and some are in um, ones in foreign affairs, and then a couple others in um, community governance and a few areas to community funding and things so yeah it's been quite neat um, to often be the younger governor in the table and, and often to bring my cultural experience and, uh, and 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 often in the northern boards is to be the South Island person so that's um, as we've sort of already talking about all the different perspectives and, and insights we can bring from where we're born and what we know That's a really good point you've raised around the geography as well um, just a different perspective there And finally Kate well, I don't have a history background, <laughs> but uh, I've been involved in governance for quite a wee while now, falling into it by default. I didn't know it was called governance, really. Uh, I arrived back in New Zealand after a time of being overseas to the start of the hospice movement here in New Zealand, so my background is in nursing. And when hospices were first evolving and we needed a national office uh, in Wellington. I was part of the early days of setting that up and running our own hospice here in Christchurch and I knew that the way some of the services were running then weren't quite right but I couldn't name it or identify it. I just knew that there was a big knowledge gap in my understanding of how these organisations should help. So I went on a steep learning curve, really, to to look at governance over management of organisations and have then 
developed that over the years, but my background and the boards that I'm on now have got health or an education perspective. Fantastic. So again, a different perspective to the group. Kate and I are both very involved with an organisation called Governance New Zealand. Um, I'm a past president. It's a by-examination organisation, so it's inclusive in that anyone can become a member provided you meet their educational standards. Fantastic. And does that have a role across New Zealand in terms of encouraging others into governance? Absolutely. It's part of a big international organisation, so we're one of nine international divisions. And because it has this educational qualification, it offers worldwide a standard education around governance, now at a tertiary level. So here in New Zealand, you need a degree to do the exams of the Governance Institute. But they also not only deal with the director side, but with the running of a company to meet statutory requirements. And this traditionally was called the company secretary. Nowadays, is renamed as governance professional within an organisation, largely corporate, who will manage and run the day-to-day requirements for the chair of the organisation in terms of their governance uh, commitments. Fantastic. Okay, so I guess if we're thinking about diversity in governance, there are two key words in that title. Firstly, diversity. I imagine often when people think about diversity and governance, the automatic thought is women and then potentially also ethnicity. But I imagine we're talking much broader than that, aren't we? I think ultimately we are. But in terms of improving diversity at at a board level, working on um, improving the representation of women is probably much easier than just generally trying to improve diversity. I think increasingly we're seeing an emphasis on ethnicity. Some countries, for example, Canada has now broadened their legal requirements to include disability. If we can make progress in those areas, the rest will follow. One of the other areas, I suppose, is also lived experience. So in some of my mental health and wellbeing boards, we see people who have deepened the courage to speak about their lived experience of mental distress or depression, anxiety, other challenges, and then use that insight to help, not necessarily giving suggestions to how the operations, how the day-to-day running of the organisation or or service or support is, but that overarching strategy that, that governance is about and how that helps ground Well, what's offered, because that's the ultimate opportunity is for it to really meet the needs of people. The other part of governance is often it's quite expensive to be trained and to be connected, to even be in the the relationships that can help you get on boards and things. Um, Maybe you didn't go to the right school. It's just not something in your world. Like For me, I didn't know similarly that governance was an option and that I certainly didn't know the name of it, but it was more just that our community here in Christchurch had focused in for Pacific young people around building leadership. And so in building leadership and then us starting a Pacific Youth Trust, And then after that, we started to realise, oh, this is actually how people run the country and how people run communities. And so it ended up being, oh, there's actually a skill in this. And it's a profession, even if people might not necessarily think of it like the doctor, lawyer, nurse, teacher, those clear ones. But provided you've got the right relationships and resources and our community helped us build those, you can be there. But it is a hard door to get into. And it's really helpful what we've seen with women increasing their presence and communities shifting how we see governance because actually women's leadership techniques and styles are much more inclusive generally and I see on my boards which are led by women are generally much more 
comfortable for me as an Indigenous person and we've got that openness to explore and challenge and sometimes too much masculinity in the room is not good for decision making and governance is one of those places where we want critical thinking and good risk management and so <laughs> shooting from the hip is is often really inappropriate. I've had the experience of being on an all-woman board as well as being the only woman on a board and I've also uh, had the pleasure of being on balanced boards where you've roughly got 50-50 gender. The women-only board was a lot of fun. We talked a lot of fashion. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the day, the balanced board is the one I think that was the most productive, that you had a sufficient number of women that you'd weren't the token and were very defensive and felt you were there to represent the minority, which may or may not have been the case, or you were just wrapped up in the issues and interests of your gender, which again led for a very skewed view of the world. Yes, I agree. The balance board is the key for me, but I think when we looked at diversity to begin with, if you look back historically, most boards were governed by men because Mm. they were in the business world, and there was nothing sort of wrong with that. It was the time, but thankfully society changes over time. And I was on a board uh, with one other woman, quite a large board, And I felt utterly inadequate. I felt I couldn't be heard. I was thinking left of centre from the rest of them, but I thought I had something valuable to offer. And it was in that experience that uh, I went looking for more education. I had the pleasure of meeting Roseanne and understanding that she had spent her time with her PhD on the subject and was involved with addressing the needs of women on boards which we have as an organisation in New Zealand and I signed up to that simply as an opportunity to have some kindred spirits really and and learn had others had those same awkward moments that I had trying to have my voice heard. I've grown in confidence, thankfully, (laughs) since then and see that diversity across all the issues that you've been speaking at and having that balance board is the key. And I guess most of my governance roles have been in the not-for-profit sector and it is a way of giving back to the community once you've got some experience to offer that community. And the board's only as good as the representation of the community, of the board, for the organisation that you're working for. I think that's a critical point. The other key word in that title was governance. What exactly is governance? Is it just sitting on a board or is it kind of much broader than that? Josiah is shaking his head, I can see. (laughs) (laughs) I think governance is the opportunity to set the strategy to help make sure that you've got the money to do the work and to have the right kind of testing, like just verbally testing and looking at the papers or that you might get to to check, to be a a, a critical friend of the team who are doing the day-to-day work. Some might dispute the word friend and and fair enough (laughs) because the relationships between the board and and the the leaders of the organisation sometimes isn't that good. But I tend to think you can be friendly and and have close relationships with them because that's ultimately what pulls the whole organisation because you're not there day to day. So you come in for a little bit and then help set the strategy, help check things are on, and then disappear away until your next board meeting, which may be a few months away or later in the year. 
for me, governance is about oversight over management, largely. Good CEOs tend to be very strong characters, and they very quickly can start working the system to suit themselves. And so one of the critical roles of a board is accountability by management for what they're doing. And I think just knowing that you've got a spotlight on you, even if it's once a quarter, and you're having to produce certain reports, it does increase the possibility that things will stay on track. But getting into that level without working in the business, Mm. working on the business and looking in on it, I think is extremely difficult. And you need as a director to be very perceptive Mm. and do your homework. You know, there's no slouching on a board. You need to contribute, bringing your expertise, being professional, maintaining a distance, because often you're judging people's performance. So you can't be too friendly. It's quite a balancing act in itself, particularly if you're the chair, because most of the action goes through the chair, balancing that relationship with the CEO. Yes, for me, I think governance is that strategic direction, not the management of the organisation. But having the ability to think strategically and doing a bit of an environmental scan from the organisation's perspective. Whose needs are we meeting? Who are we serving? Having that vision and being outcomes-focused, I guess, that that the mission and vision for the organisation is meeting the needs of the people it's supposed to serve. Not getting involved with the management side, but supporting the CEO Sometimes there's a balance because in the not-for-profit sector there can be that overlap if you think of uh, your community sports groups or, or school communities where you're trying to have that strategic direction but then everybody rolls their sleeves up as well in those organisations so there can be blurred boundaries which can be helpful but you've got to be mindful of them before you cause a problem. But then the board has the idea after the strategic vision to make sure the organisation is resourced to carry out that mission. So resourcing in terms of finance or personnel or facilities, whatever resourcing might mean. Fantastic. So one last question then before we have our first song. What's the situation like in New Zealand in terms of statistics? Do we know how diverse our boards are? Oh, yes, in great detail. And we've been monitoring this for 15, 20 years now. The first study was done by Zonta in about 1987, and there was probably 2% women on boards as the very first census. The Human Rights Commission under Judy McGregor actively conducted censuses extensively, and now that push has fallen away. But we do know internationally it's well monitored as well. It's patchy across the world. Here in New Zealand, we're doing really well. We're one of the leaders, particularly in the state sector where we're reaching parity in a number of areas. But in terms of our corporate sector, we are probably around 20%. The bigger the company, the bigger corporates have more women on boards. And usually the top 100 companies is your benchmark against which everybody else is measured. How about in terms of other types of diversity? Do we know about that as well? We're starting to measure that. And again, it internationally depends on the issues in your country. So, for example, in South Africa, which has black empowerment legislation, ethnicity is critical there. 
uh, Canada's ahead in terms of minorities. But in, in many situations, because it's not legislated, uh, it doesn't happen. So you're very much in favour of legislation? I'm very much in favour of counting. I'm not in favour of too much legislation. I would say targets rather than legal quotas. But I'm certainly in favour of counting because what gets counted or measured gets changed. I think this is one of the important roles that groups of activists, men and women in board diversity, can play is ensuring that we have regular censuses. We might have our first song then. Josiah, you've chosen Albertine by Brooke Fraser. Was there a reason for this? I guess there's a little bit of a governance connection is that the lyrics and now that I've seen I'm responsible, faith without deeds is dead. And so that's kind of, I think, governance in a song.
This is Speak Up Cord Editor and today we're talking about diversity in governance. Well, another big question for our three panellists, why do we want to have diverse boards? What are the benefits that they bring? Obviously, at the end of the day, more productive, better run, more focused organisations providing what the community needs. And obviously, in a, in a capitalist economy, making money, making profits, and good governance will achieve this. Maybe one of the ones that comes to mind is trust. Often community will look at who's on the board and get a sense of whether they are able to raise what is important to them. And it's similarly with people in politics. And so I was appointed to a board of the Mental Health and Addictions Inquiry. There were six of us who were who were put there to review what was happening in our mental health and well-being in 2018. And I was 22, and our oldest panel member was um, close to 80. And so it was important for New Zealand that they could sort of see, and speaking into what was going on, that actually there was a younger person who actually has grown up in the digital age unlike some of our other panel members who that's not their lived experience and so it's quite important when we were thinking about what the solutions we could recommend and also for us to have the capability to understand what we're being told it wasn't good enough to just have staff who understand that you need the directors too as well and so in some of the big challenges like for those who follow what's happening in governance across New Zealand you'll sort of see in Waikato District Health Board which got hacked recently significantly hacked and patient data has been taken and, 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 and shared online, breaching huge principles of protecting people's privacy. And it's important that the board, that board and all boards who are in this digital world get a sense of what it means to be online. And, and so those technical skills alongside the trust of actually being able to see someone who you think might be able to understand your lived experience helps in the perspective that's brought and then the accountability and connection with community. I think it's really important the diversity is around also skills and knowledge base. That lived experience that Josiah mentions is hugely important. I recall in one of the boards in my early days it was all male and they were discussing women's health issues and I just looked and I thought how can you do that? That was just abhorrent to me. They were making decisions on women's screening for certain health issues without any knowledge base. Bless them. They may well have had partners or wives, but they had no lived experience. And I thought, this cannot be. It's not authentic. It's not real. And so that diversity is really key from that mm. point of view about the knowledge and skill space truly being representative. We've spoken about the benefits to an organisation, but how about the benefits from the other end in terms of engaging people who otherwise might not have these kinds of opportunities and bringing them into governance? Have you and your experiences seen flow on from bringing people into governance in terms of confidence building, voice, equality, these sorts of things? I feel very strongly that people suddenly realise what governance is about too late in life and then are too late in starting to get experience. So doing what Josiah has been able to achieve uh, at a young age is absolutely important and critical. And so I encourage many of the young women that I meet, get any governance experience you can, any little committee, it doesn't matter what size, what kind of organisation, church, school, 
boards, PTAs, all that starts building up confidence and knowledge of how good governance works. One of the rules, particularly around director networks, is that success breeds success. So the more experience you get, the more valuable you become, the more people will want you, and so you will get more opportunities. Um, in other words, the rich get richer. But that's the name of the game, and you've got to start when you're in your 40s, I would say. is probably the, the most productive time where you've got some life experience and you've got some qualifications to start looking for board and committee appointments and learning the ropes Yes, I agree. I guess I was young when I went into it, not that I could name it back then. I was probably 25, 26, um, and I was stroppy, I guess, sort of seeing these men making decisions on women's health issues, and I was indignant. So I said, well, how do you get onto this organisation? This has got to stop. They're back in the dim, dark ages. I'm not having it. And I guess at that point, an age and inexperience and naivety can get you places. Uh, the more you know, the more questions you have, and possibly the less confidence that goes with it. Through my own experiences, I've been able to now support much younger, gorgeous, dynamic people behind me to come in almost on an intern basis. I think that's quite a nice thing for boards to consider, somebody that you can you recognise some potential and they have a skill set that would be really helpful. And Josiah's comment, of course, about the digital age is really classic um, to bring somebody in who's savvy in that line. For them to be mentored, coached, observed, they don't get voting rights around the table necessarily, and they um, sign up to confidentiality around what's happening at the board table. But it's a lovely way of bringing people in because it's not always easy you might have a passion for it, but if you've got no experience or qualifications, the question is, how do you get involved? This is the catch-22 of directing. You, you will only get the board appointment if you've got experience, but you won't get the experience until you've got the board appointment. And I'm afraid always the supply exceeds demand. And if you were to say to me, why, why is that the case? And I, my answer is the three Ps, power, prestige, and payment that make uh, being a director a desirable occupation. So those who are selecting boards usually are spoilt for choice and can easily perpetuate their view of the way they want that board to look, which is usually to have people around the table that they're comfortable with. Birds of a feather flock together is the other rule. And again, board diversity is a conscious decision to try and avoid that situation. You want people around you who make you feel edgy, a little bit uncomfortable, coming out of left field. One other point I wanted to mention, I some years ago did an analysis of accredited and provisional directors that were category of membership that currently at the time was offered by the Institute of Directors. And I hopped on the company's register, downloaded all the directorships of each accredited member, very senior board directors, largely on quoted companies, and there were 10% women amongst them. And I discovered that the men directors in their lifetime had some of them up to 100 directorship. Now that is a huge amount of mm. governance experience. Mm. Similarly, the senior women had between 
25 to 35 directorships. So much less experience. And this was just a function of having your name out there, getting known. So one of the reasons for getting going early is to start developing that name recognition Unless you have some sort of celebrity status, famous rugby players, if they want to get board appointments, much easier. And whether they've got the capability is a <laughs> question entirely. Yes. 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 Celebrity status, mm. however that's expressed. Yes. And maybe that goes can open doors for you. Totally. And maybe that goes into the other point. So once you've become a director or a board member or you're one of the team, you are legally responsible. And that's the other part I think that's quite a hard mm. piece for some people to struggle with at any age is the ship goes down, <laughs> you go down with the ship. Not that that's the reality of how most companies operate because the, the rigour of how you work protects that from happening. But that is the, the, the buck. So if you're watching um, some of the, the, the big news stories and when a company has made a bad decision and then the, um, the CEO's gone out maybe on the first day of that story and they haven't done a good job or maybe they've done somewhat of a job and the public's still not happy with it, then the board chair goes out and then maybe there's a statement from the whole board. I was on a board um, a few years ago where we had a, a trustee who was married to a senior member of the government at the time and we received a grant from the government for some work we were doing in a different area and the story was that there'd been collusion between this member of parliament and then their spouse who was on our board and the photo was of all like seven or eight of us and they talked through <laughs> what we were all doing to to get this to happen and so I guess not just the legal responsibility but then there's the political context and having your name and having your your family's name and having your community be alongside you as, as you being on these boards it has some some big consequences when you're the one who, who the buck stops with and then on the other side I guess one other little thing just based on what we're talking about is I personally struggle with the, the sense that we've got some good internship programs in other areas and I, I think we really do need an Aotearoa State Boards internship. I think that's, that's missing. We've got to give more people the opportunity to test it. Personally though, I, I was uncomfortable that you'd be there in the room participating in everything but then not have a vote. Or, and so I tend more towards the, if you're in the room, if you're signing the clause, if you're doing everything else and you personally are comfortable taking the legal and political risk, I think that the board should just open the door because you're already there and doing all the rest of the work. There's an opportunity to value you the same as other board members. Not sure we'd agree with you. No, please, <laughs> and, um, and that, that this is and hopefully we're showing this is what the boardroom is like. You know, yes. you put out what you believe in, and then and see how it goes. And, and in this case, I'm voted down, and that's that's we go with the majority. I think one of the other aspects is if you offered a board position, is not to be shy to do due diligence, to ask to see financial statements. Minutes of the last board meeting. Talk with um, someone. Talk with somebody. Go do a site visit. You learn a lot walking around. And I think people are so often, because they know that these are hard to come by, are so thrilled to, mm. to even be nominated that they really don't often do their homework. But then I think you see the other side where people walk away because they're too afraid of the responsibility. And a good uh, board will have checks and balances in place to mitigate that, including board insurance, and there are other ways in which you can protect yourself. You also have issues if you're a professional. So if you're a lawyer or an accountant, you have uh, professional constraints over what you can and can't do on a board, and that needs to be taken into account as well. 
we might have our second song. Roseanne, you've chosen Reign of Africa by Toto, and I believe this is a, a song that means quite a lot to you. Uh, you probably can hear from my accent, I'm an Afro-Kiwi, although I've been here 25 <laughs> years. So I originally come from Johannesburg, and right now South Africa is, as I'm sure you've all seen on the TV, experiencing significant unrest. Uh, so it's very much top of mind. We know a lot of family and friends in places that are experiencing civil disquiet and destruction. And this is a very poignant song. There seems to be a lot of unity in terms of one of the things that will come out of this unrest and community well-being and spirit, particularly the inter-ethnic spirit, seems to be rising.
Speak Up for Dereotia, and we're talking about diversity in governance with Roseanne Howarden, Josiah Tuala Mali'i, and Kate Reed. I'd like to think now about how do we look to encourage diversity in governance? What are some techniques, some tactics that help that kind of practical engagement of diverse members onto a board? Well, the old difficult, thorny issue is quotas and targets. I'm in the pro-quota camp with a time limit. Sorry, what do you mean by the time limit? By quota, I would mean a legislated balance on a board. 60-40 balance seems to be the legislated requirement. It makes it practical. And we see very swift responses. For example, Norway has a quota. A lot of the EU countries have quotas. And they very quickly have achieved board equity. But if you took away that legislated requirement, what would happen? I think it's a good point that we want organisations and decision makers to want to have women in diversity because it's better for the outcomes of the organisation and for what community benefit from because more and deeper increasing thoughtfulness is, is exactly what governance needs. Um, in terms of a quota, I support a quota partly because I look at what happens in things like water and you see how very quickly when we take our eyes off things we allow it to get further and further from the outcome that, that we need. I'm interested to hear more about the time limits. I don't, I can't say I know much about that, but it would be good to see this thoroughly debated. The government now could do it by themselves. They don't need any other set of votes because they've got the number. So I, I hope they do take the opportunity <laughs> to debate this in Parliament. So a target would be what we call a soft goal. Uh, and we certainly, just from the research I've done, we certainly see changes happening where you have targets and where boards report on it regularly, as our current stock exchange requires, whereas quotas are what I would call a, a hard target. What we see with both soft and hard targets um, is the term golden skirts and golden suits. Essentially what they are are the directors through the glass ceiling they're the top group in any country or stock exchange of senior board directors. And what happens is where you have quotas, uh, the golden skirts, the women, win out and the men, the golden suits, lose out. You have fewer of them. One of the consequences of quotas and targets is that a few women get more board appointments Whereas I think if essentially the goal at the end of the day is to have more women with maybe one or two board appointments. But this golden suits, uh, golden skirts phenomenon does seem to level itself out. And one of the things that stops directors getting too many board appointments, I think there's great consciousness about having too many appointments and not able to, to perform adequately is limits on numbers of board appointments per person. We want more people with not much experience getting through that glass ceiling and getting that first board appointment. Once you're through the glass ceiling and you're good, you will, without difficulty, gather more board appointments. It's getting that first critical board appointment, but you need the experience to even be in the running to get it. And how long you stay on the board is mm. also an interesting point. It's not just jobs for the boys or the girls, really. But yes. I, I think boards need to be encouraged to really look 
at the skill set that's sitting around there and play to the strengths uh, of those and identifying the gaps and looking, actively looking, rather than just sort of shoulder tapping, then how long do you stay? There's a lot of boards will have a, a term, an office, so to speak, and that's fixed and you go. Others will have a fixed term with a right of renewal over so many years, uh, so it's all quite flexible, I guess. But then there's also a balance because the fresh ideas and keeping up to date is absolutely critical. But you also have to balance it depending on the board itself with losing too much historical knowledge. Mm. And that can be um, incredibly threatening. Uh, you repeat mistakes that have been done before if there's yep. nobody in there putting their hand up going, oh, excuse me, been there, done that, this is what happened. Um, that's not to say you shouldn't repeat it, but you do so knowingly. And I've seen uh, or heard the stories of a number of organisations who have sadly dipped out because everybody's spun over at the same time and that knowledge base, that historical knowledge mm. base has been lost. Mm. And that probably makes me think of the other job of the board, which I've always found probably the most confronting in that you are most of the time an employer. You're an employer of one person, the CEO or the manager or whatever, and as someone who's 26, (laughs) co-owns a van with my flatmate and lives in a flat, my life's pretty student life almost, compared to other directors, let alone the CEO who's quite accomplished and they earn lots of dollars or maybe not lots but they but they earn more than I do and so those things are quite interesting to, to actually have to focus and think about that <laughs> and, and, uh, and and how we balance that. So succession planning is what mm. we're talking about here and this is one very important role of governance is to ensure uh, succession uh, in, in the organisation and at the board table and, and within management itself. In terms of statutory law in New Zealand, if you're on a government board, you're three terms of three years is pretty much the strict rule. No matter how good you are, after nine years, you're gone. And I'm very pro that. I think that works really well um, because if you haven't contributed pretty much everything you can in nine years, should, should you actually still be on that board? And what are you going to offer if you stay on, that you aren't offering already, the benefit of fresh leadership probably outweighs to some extent that historical knowledge provided, as Kate said, the whole board doesn't depart at once. Mm. And and that certainly does happen, doesn't it? Mm. Particularly if it's a sinking ship and the rats mm. start jumping. How about from the other point of view, if we're thinking about encouraging community into boards? Josiah, I know you've been involved in a recent porno about encouraging Pacifica to come and learn about what would be required to be on a board. What kind of programs or techniques have we got in, in terms of encouraging people to take that first step we've been talking about or, or supporting them to take that first step? If you're listening and you're, you're a Pacific person in Aotearoa, or maybe you live in the Cook Islands, New or Tukela, which have special relationships with New Zealand, um, Melia Went and Karen Dungi are two very senior um, Pacific governors and they r- run a national training program for Pacific governors or Pacific people in community leadership or just interested in being involved in making decisions and so that's one path that we have and then the other path that we've already sort of been talking about is in our churches when you have the, the church councils or you might have um, the, the, 
the Pacific Community Organisation, like our health service or um, our, our, um, our local performing arts group. Those are good places that often um, our communities start off on. There is an opportunity for the professional governance organisations to help connect people who are in those pathways, who are in those places, who have those skills to those other organisations and that's something Karen and Bailey are trying to help with and I try to do this too is when you're in that space and that's your life trying to help people just know about who you know and I think that's one of the biggest opportunities we have is just to share our networks and keep talking about others and and often people say if we can just practice this more decision making so that's the other part too whether in school or at home just to help people test what it's like to part of making decisions. It certainly is a form of leadership. I think if people start thinking, well, I can be a leader in my group or in my community and have a strong conviction that this is something they can do, and if they start looking, there are a wealth of resources out there. I think motivation is critical. I think this needs to be part of your vision of yourself in your future in a leadership role. And if you belong to an ethnic minority, or a woman, I think this is something you really should feel morally obliged to do uh, quite strongly about this, that, that you've got to lean in, as Cheryl Sandberg says. It's a two-way street. You've got to show willing and you've got to do the work. Often the opportunities will open up if, if you start putting your hand up. I mean, you might get knocked down. There's quite a good chance you will. Uh, so some of... Um, Getting onto boards is learning to take the nose. I think a lot of people will have had the experience of applying for multiple boards and never even making the cut and getting an interview to the extent that you start thinking, well, why am I even trying? This is just a total waste of effort. But my argument there is you have to have the line in the water to catch the fish. And that's why I believe you can't be too picky when you start out take the opportunity when it presents itself to you. Have we seen any setbacks in the last couple of years? And I'm thinking with things like COVID, the changes that we've all had to go through, and I guess all the unrest we're seeing all around the world as well. Have we seen this sort of context pushing things backwards at all? I think everything's on pause, and I think a lot of change and progress is on hold. And so perhaps opportunities that would have opened up aren't there just yet. But on the other side, I think Zoom has totally transformed access to governance that boards don't need to physically meet. I think Zoom is a great leveller. I recently participated in a webinar in Zimbabwe. We did a Zoom conference and there were these amazing dynamic women with exactly the same aspirations women in New Zealand have. So in some respects, COVID has opened a few doors that might never have been open. I totally agree. I've been on a couple too of international ones, which I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, but because of COVID and the Zoom links, and uh, that's been my biggest learning in the last year, which has just been neat. So yeah, there's always a upside, well, creative ways that we get thrown into when you've got a pandemic in this situation, but the creativity that's come out and how we connect and learn from each other in different countries, I've just found that fascinating. It's been a godsend, really. I agree with everything that's been said. I've quite enjoyed not having to have to go to some of the board meetings in person and 
yeah, I found that really helpful because practically, if you've got board meetings in the North Island, they only want you to go for the day. Maybe you're on the 6am flight and then home at the 7am flight. It looks a bit more glorious than it is. What are some of the barriers or the challenges to trying to encourage people into boards? You've talked about political will and how maybe we haven't seen enough of that perhaps if we're talking about wanting quotas or targets. But what else are some of these barriers? I think there's quite a distinct and growing political barrier at the moment around the place of Te Tiriti, the place of the Treaty of Waitangi, and where directors are getting more encouragement and more direction from what the country is trying to do around the space of equity for Māori and other communities, but leading for Māori. And we're seeing increasing voice that that's not important. That's not to say we haven't had that in the past, but I think that there's a a challenge for directors to hold firm to whether there is a treaty principle or not, that there is a responsibility for every organisation to help try and make it easier and better outcomes for Māori and that can be quite difficult for directors who don't have that lived experience or maybe feel uncomfortable with basic te reo or, or understanding of tikanga or protocols and so that's probably one of the biggest opportunities I think for board directors and and then for organisations or boards to notice and people, yeah, because that's one of the big skills gaps that we often have in our boards. And as a Pacific person, I often find in some of my boards, I'm ending up at the best cultural advice I can possibly give in terms of what works for Māori. But then that in itself is a problem and a barrier. It's not my lived experience. And then I guess the other part of that, and you both would probably have lots to say about this and I'd be interested to hear, is the potential double burden. The burden of just being there as a director, and that's not any different from everyone else, but then board directors considering you a representative of something, when actually everyone on the board is supposed to carry responsibility of engagement and responsibility of connection to everyone. And that's not a new one, but I think that's one that we have to really unpack going forward for governance to be truly accessible because we don't want people to just join the board pigeonhole to only do one thing. I think this is a real issue and it's never really going to be resolved because it's a dynamic tension between your first goal as a director is to be responsible for the well-being of company or organisation of which you are a director. That's very clear. But if you're there as a representative of something, you do have this group to whom you are accountable and you have to balance their views with what you perceive to be the best interests of the organisation. But I think at the end of the day, if it's managed well by a good chair, you can get synergy and creativity and new ideas. Whereas I think many of us will have had experiences of where a representative board can be very disruptive and conflictful, and if the chair is weak you can stall and it can be very unpleasant. There's the other part too I guess I'm wondering about is the the side where you're not a formal representative but you're perceived by the rest of the directors to be the representative and that's an unspoken thing that's kind of no one else has to Mm. wear maybe. Women wear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, Great, you brought that up, Josiah, because if we're paying true respect to the treaty which we must do here then there is a lot of critique poked at boards about Maori representation but that has to be more than tokenism Mm. 
and certainly colleagues on boards that I've sat on who also happen to be Māori once you know there's a skill set there they're the same people that are shoulder tapped everywhere so Mm. there's that balance of not burning them out and how do they foster those coming behind them as well and also I sit on a board with actually a colleague of mine from the university who was appointed to the board because she's got a fabulous brain for research and that was her skill set. She happens to be Maori, but that, that mm. was not the first identifier. The skill mm. set that was missing around the board was that research mm. mind. And then, as you've just pointed out, because of what she physically looks mm. like, which is utterly gorgeous with her lovely olive skin, mm. she said, oh, well, you're there for Maori. And, well, yes, she is, but that's a wonderful sidelined asset that she brings. But being clear about what her role is and not yeah. burdening her with taking on all that responsibility. So we need, in that situation, perhaps someone else who is bringing a strong Maori influence in there of which she can also support but the clarity of the roles I think Mm. is needed. There is a perception that successful women directors don't help younger women get board appointments and I imagine it's also true in ethnic communities as well that there's this sense of entitlement and preciousness and cutting out the competition, make no mistake, this is a competitive process, uh, getting these board And as women, you do run across other women. In fact, I think you go and ask people, to, will you be my mentor? And this is quite a difficult situation. I'd quite like to discuss the role of mentors and mentees here. From the mentor's point of view, finding people that are worth promoting, So if you are looking for a mentor, I think you need as an individual to start acquiring talents, skills, abilities to assist and enhance your mentor, your prospective mentor. Because I think that at the end of the day is what will spark that initial rapport. And once you've got that rapport going and a friendship going, um, if people like you and see you as adding something to their lives they will be more inclined to mentor you. And I think there's no doubt some of the very successful directors in this country have all been lucky and found an older, more experienced person who has guided them along the way. But they've earned it. It hasn't been a one-way street. Yes, I'm absolutely pro the mentor idea. And for me, I have a number of them (laughs) for different reasons. Some of them don't actually even know that they're my mentor (laughs) because they're people who just kind of ooze some mana that Mm. I respect. The way they engage, the way they connect, just the way they look. I really like them for a variety of reasons and you learn from them. And you can have that formal relationship as well. There's absolutely a place for that. But you can also do it by observing others and actually also learning how not to be like, I don't want to be like you. (laughs) This is part of leadership, being a role model to others, isn't it? Yes, it is. And certainly it's part of governance as well. I think as a profession, we rely on our senior members to be role models and to, um, almost goes with the territory, develop the next generation. 
hopefully by becoming good and, and deep in these relationships with the newer directors too it's promoting and maintaining the career because it builds those new relationships yes. that people recommend those trusted people who mm. spoke into their lives and gave them that time as well and becomes an echo chamber of feedback and support mm. Okay, well, we are unfortunately running out of time. So I'd just like to finish up by asking you a final question, which is what would you like to see as we move forward? I want to see regular censuses of women on boards happening, and that requires an interested and committed research community, probably at university level, with international links. I support that completely, and I also think we should have an Aotearoa State Boards Internship Programme that's distinct from being a full board member and then there's options to have the legal risk and not have the risk. I concur with my two colleagues here. I think that's absolutely sensible. And don't be afraid mm. to take somebody by the hand and walk them along behind us to scoop people up and give them a go. Mm. Open the doors, really. Don't be afraid to do that. Totoko. As I was preparing for this show, I looked at a document that was kind of around how do you recruit and then maintain a board and lots of the points you've raised are what they'd suggested as well so things like um, look beyond your own social circles your own business circles try and recruit people who are not your copycats things like what exactly does diversity mean to your organization proactively reflect on those sorts of questions look beyond those single identifiers so as we're talking about skill sets not just how do you identify but what can you bring What's your lived experience? Those sorts of things. And also a really critical one that you've touched on is around don't just have that tick box person who's going to represent diversity. You need to be able to look beyond that tick box exercise. So I want to say thank you so much because I think this has been incredibly thought-provoking and you've brought so much experience and a wealth of knowledge to this kōrero. So tēnā koutou.